A reading from, from Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with the righteousness, he shall judge the poor and, this, and decide the equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a small child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall pull his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the second Sunday of Advent. Advent is a season when we celebrate the birth of the Savior of the world. A reading from Luke 2, 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to the, her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into the heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. 
But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Once again, welcome to Gateway. This is the second Sunday of Advent, and our theme for today is that he came to save the whole world. The whole world. In Luke chapter 11, in the passage that David read for us earlier, uh, verse 10 says this, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10, the passage that Dominique read for us, the angel said this, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Okay, the idea that Jesus was the Savior of the world was centerpiece, defining feature of the teaching and the ministry of Isaiah. It was also a defining feature of the lives and the teaching of the apostles. Consistent with that. In Matthew 16, listen to what Jesus promised. Jesus said this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And when he uses the word church here, he means simply gathering of people who are in allegiance to him, the Jesus movement. And according to Jesus, that movement is going to grow and nothing can stop it until he's the savior of the world. Now, usually what we do here on Sunday morning is we take a passage of scripture. Because we believe literally the Bible is God's word, and it's authoritative, and it it speaks to our lives. We take a passage of Scripture, and we'll turn it over and back and look at it like a diamond. We'll examine all the facets of it and unpeel it and pack it in and see how that moves into our lives and our hearts. Once in a while, like last Sunday and again this morning, we won't do that. We'll take kind of a bigger picture perspective. And this morning, we're going to do that. We're going to step back and... Today will be a a big picture contemplation of of how Jesus has been the Savior of the world. And more specifically, we're going to offer and then explain how the, first of all, the growth of the Jesus movement, and then what that means for our lives. So here's our contention. Let's start with this, and this is going to be what, what we're pointing toward, what we kind of prove, and then what we apply to our lives today. The contention is this. The growth of the Jesus movement is unparalleled when considering both scope and duration, so much so that it commands our attention. The growth of the Jesus movement is unparalleled when considering both scope and duration, so much so that it commands our attention just based on that fact alone. All right, remember Jesus' claim that he would build his church and nothing hell could throw at it would stop it. Well, to start this conversation this morning, we need to get a clearer picture of how ridiculous Jesus' claim was. So let's set the context. The ancient world was a deeply religious world, but not in the way we imagine, and not in the way that readied it for the story of Jesus. So I'm going to read this morning from a church historian who teaches at Baylor University in Texas. He's an outstanding historian. His name is Rodney Stark, and he's written a book called The Triumph of Christianity. And I just want to read several paragraphs from the first two pages. Listen to this. This is awesome. He starts the book like this. On Christmas Eve, and he means the first Christmas Eve, on Christmas Eve, almost everywhere on earth, the gods were thought to be many and undependable. 
Aside from having some magical powers and perhaps the gift of immortality, the gods had normal human concerns and shortcomings. They ate, drank, loved, envied, fornicated, cheated, lied, and otherwise set morally unedifying examples. They took offense if humans failed to properly propitiate them, but otherwise they took little interest in human affairs. It goes on. Despite worshiping many gods, aside from Rome, most societies were not religiously diverse. Even when gods had their own individual temples, they were part of a unified system, fully funded and often closely regulated by the state. Consequently, the primary mission of pagan temples was to ensure that the gods favored the state and its ruling elite, often to such an extent that only the privileged few could gain admission to the temples. In most society, pagan temples were served by an exclusive priesthood, either based on hereditary religious caste or recruited from the elite, and they served a clientele rather than a membership. Clients came to the temple for various festivals, and sometimes in pursuit of personal, spiritual, or material benefits, but most often, the temples really served as eating clubs. From time to time, someone would donate an animal to be sacrificed, after which the donor and the donor's friends would have a feast on the meat. Temples employed skilled chefs. For many of those involved in the temples, these banquets were the sum of their participation. For many of those involved, that's the only way they participated in their God. He goes on, of course, such tepid temple activities were relatively incidental to the lives and activities of those involved. So their temple participation was incidental to their lives. I'm sorry, I missed this important sentence. People only went to temples. They did not belong to them. Those who favored a particular God did not identify themselves in those terms. For example, no one claimed to be a Zeusian or a Jovian. In fact, most people patronized several temples and various gods depending on their tastes and needs. There was no congregational life because there were no congregations in the sense of regular gatherings of groups having a common religious focus and a sense of belonging. So, we have to understand that Christianity ran against the grain of everything I just read. It was wildly countercultural. And yet... Christianity ultimately won. It ultimately changed the entire atmosphere of the ancient world and everything I just read. Now, one would think that the amount of change that the Jesus movement demanded of ancient people would have been enough to have derailed it before it even got started. It was so far afield from the typical religious mindset of the day, especially in Asia Minor and Europe, that it should have been a non-starter for most people. This should have never gotten off the ground. Plus, people don't tend to change easily. I don't know if you've noticed that. And accepting the Jesus story was more than a simple change. It involved changing your entire worldview for most ancients. I mean, to accept the Jesus story, you had to move from polytheism to monotheism. Now, there were Jews, and there were Zoroastrians, and there were those who worshipped Isis and Sibyl, but even those, in some cases, tended to believe in many gods that they just favored their God and believed that he was bigger than all others. But aside from that, and that was a minority, they were polytheistic. The ancients had to move from a religion as a service rendered to religion as a whole life commitment. They had to move from religion that supported the cultural norms to a religion that superseded culture. In fact, it had no reference to culture at all. To subscribe to this new faith 
An ancient person had to completely reorient the way they understood the world. And in many cases, there was just no preparation. There was no conceptual precedent for the change that was required. Let me give you an idea of what I mean. Take a modern-day follower of Islam, for example. With such a person, they already understand and embrace the idea of one God who fully requires their allegiance. They understand identifying with God as the driving principle in their life. So to communicate Jesus, we only need to communicate that the God they worship has actually revealed himself and has offered himself by grace and, and not by their obedience to a, a set of laws and standards. And admittedly, this is a big task and the gap is wide, but at least they have some compatible concepts. But the average ancient outside of Judaism had no categories for what they were hearing. And yet, I want you to look at this chart that Dr. Stark builds. Now, this chart is based on a number of different historians of ancient history, and they build these statistics from a variety of mechanisms, like one example is counting tombstones and the pro proliferation of tombstones that mention Christian references at, in, over the various centuries. And from a lot of different angles, they've come to very, very similar conclusions about the number of Christians that were throughout the Roman Empire. And you see 40 AD, and this is the only one I'm going to make much of a comment about, 40 AD, the, he says there were a thousand Christians. And what he's done there is same mechanisms have been used by him and by others, various mechanisms actually. But in Dr. Stark's case, he took the account in Acts and he recognized, you know, the, some of you are familiar with that account. In the Acts account, 3,000 people became Christians in a day and Dr. Stark recognized that there was probably some serious attrition there. You know, there were a number of those folks who said, I'm in, and then a week later they said, you know, not really. And so he says about 40 AD, they were to start with 1,000. Let's say there were 1,000 Christians. And as they get further down the track here, the numbers become clearer historically. 50 AD, 1,397. 100 AD, 7,434. On the right, you get these little percentages. That's taking a standard 60 million in the Roman Empire as a static for throughout the history that he's examined. And it was pretty static, that population. By 180 AD, there were 107,863 Christ followers throughout the Roman Empire. By 250, 1,120,000. By 300, 5,960,000. By 350, 31,722,000. This growth chart represents a consistent 3.4% growth rate for over 300 years. Now, this kind of growth rate is not unheard of. For instance, there were early religious movements in the first three centuries growing out of a theology known as Gnosticism that at periods matched this growth rate. And in the modern era, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons have sustained well-documented growth rates that match this. But all of these examples have been over the course of decades, not centuries. Plus, the growth rate on this chart is only for the Western world. We know there were increasing numbers of adherents to the Jesus movement throughout the East as well, as far East as the Indian subcontinent and, and all the way into China. But statistics for these parts of the world are harder to come by. This is for at least two reasons. One, they, there didn't seem to be much Christian scholarship in that part of the world during this period. Um, there was certainly scholarship, but there was not Christian scholarship. Remember, for example, Luke and Paul went west 
And they were the preeminent scholars in the early church. A second reason that we don't have more statistics from the uh, eastern part of the world is because of the centuries of Muslim conquest. They effectively stamped out much of Christian history. So all of those numbers don't even include what happened to the east. By the way, for those of you who are wondering, Islam has matched the kind of growth we've been talking about at points in its history and at certain parts of the world today. But there's a difference. We'll talk about that in a minute. So why does this matter? Why look at a chart like this apart from historical curiosity? Why are we talking about this on a Sunday morning? Because it forces us to ask how this happened. How did the Jesus movement grow so explosively for so long? Remember, it faced huge cultural disadvantages. And we've got to add to that, don't we? Let's remember that all of this growth happened. Explosive, consistent, long-term growth. It happened frequently in the face of persecution. So, all of this growth happened despite the cultural hindrances, despite philosophical obstacles, and despite persecution. All of this growth happened despite cultural hindrances, despite the philosophical obstacles, and despite persecution. How do we explain that? I believe the only workable explanation is the mighty movement of a sovereign God. But we'll get back to that. And we don't have time to survey the centuries of expansion after the early era, except to say that that is what it was. It was centuries of continued expansion. But let's skip to the modern era. According to various sources, including the Pew Research Group, there were close to 600 million Christians worldwide in 1910. That means that 30 million Christians in 350 AD had become 600 million Christians 15 and a half centuries later. And remember, this was before the population explosion of the last 100 years. So in 1910, there were only 1.6 billion people in the world and 600 million of them were Christ followers. Today, there are an estimated 2.2 billion Christians in the world from a group of 12 plus a few extra stragglers. Christianity is the largest religion in the world. In fact, the only competitor is Islam. So let's say a word about Islam now. As you may know, Islam is also experiencing explosive growth around the world today. In 1990, there were 1.1 billion Muslims worldwide. Today, there are 1.6 billion Islam represents 23% of the world's population today. By 2030, 12 years from now, many demographers expect that it will be 26.5% of the world's population. That's not just growth in numbers. That's growth in the percentage of the world's population from 23 to 26.5 by 2030. However, there are many who study religion who doubt this expansion will continue among Muslims, and here's why. According to the Pew Forum, I'm going to quote them, statistical data for Muslim conversions are scarce. There is no substantial net gain or loss of Muslims due to religious conversion. The number of people who embrace Islam and those who leave Islam are roughly equal. In other words, Islam is growing solely because of birth rates. Now that's fascinating to me. Because one of the arguments I've heard advanced against belief in Jesus over the years is that, uh, quote, you only believe because it's how you were raised. At the risk of being arrogant, I would say the growth of the Jesus movement makes that claim ridiculous. Countless millions of people have become convinced of the truth of the claims of the Jesus story, opposed to their upbringing and their philosophical underpinnings and against the current of the culture of their day. 
still they become convinced. In fact, there seems to be no set of external circumstances that can slow down the growth of the Jesus movement. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Jesus said. No other movement of any kind, including religious movements, can claim anything like this. On the other hand, concerning Islam, it can be argued that the overwhelming majority of the growth attributable to that movement over the centuries is due almost exclusively to conquest and birth. In other words, you are either born into it or you become a Muslim at the point of a sword. But over and over and over and over again, millions and millions of people turn their hearts and lives completely over the direction of God because of what Jesus Christ has done based on a clear argument and profound experience and a deep sense of belonging and rightness about reality. At the risk of beating a dead horse here. Let's take one more modern example of a religious growth movement. Demographers have told us that that Hinduism is growing very rapidly in recent years in Ghana, in Russia, in Pakistan, and in the United States. However, they also note that this growth is due almost exclusively to migrations of populations from India and Fiji. Again, people are not becoming Hindus because they are convinced of the truth of it as a worldview. It seems like almost exclusively they are born into it and bring it with them to a new country. It's worth mentioning here there's another argument against the Jesus story that used to be more popular than it is today, but in this context, it's worth reviewing. It's been argued over the years that Christian faith is a Western, mostly white faith. You've maybe heard that. So if you're black or brown or you're non-Western, you should reject it because it's not your heritage. Now, I'd have to say that's kind of an ironic thing for anyone to argue since, if anything, Christianity is a Middle Eastern, specifically Jewish faith. But let's examine that notion for a moment. I think it'll help fill out our contention. For decades, Christian missionaries and people who study mission stuff and mission, and mission agencies, they've identified population centers of the world that have never heard anything about the Jesus story. So countries or regions or tribes that have never heard, they, they call these people unreached peoples or unreached groups. Did you know that less of the world is unreached than ever before. By 1900, that explosive growth that we talked about, almost half of the people groups in the world had been reached, but more than half of the people groups of the world had never had exposure to any of the story of Jesus. But by the year 2000, that number had fallen to 30%. Only 30% of the world represented a people group that had never heard, had never had any exposure to the Jesus story. And by 2017, that number had dropped to 28%, and some suggest it's far lower than that. Without question, the Jesus story continues to spread. Now, it's true that in 1900, there were twice as many Christians in Europe as the rest of the world combined. This is probably the source of the Christianity as a Western idea criticism. But did you know that in 2017, both Africa and Latin America passed Europe in the number of Christians living there? And most growth studies suggest that by 2050, Africa will be home to 1.25 billion Christians. That means in a few decades, more than one out of eight people in the world will be an African Christian. 
I want you to look at this next chart just for kicks. At the turn of the 20th century, Christianity was virtually non-existent in many parts of Africa, but it's now the faith of the majority, as the following figures demonstrate. And I just picked the top. This chart originally had like 15 or 16 countries on it. Congo Zaire, 1900, 1.4% Christian in 2000, 95.4. Swaziland, 1% Christian in 1900, 86.9% in 2000. Kenya, 0.2% Christian in 1900, 76.8% in the year 2000. I want to add that this growth has happened in spite of the fact that there have been an estimated 1.8 million martyrs in Africa over this same time period. 1.8 million people killed for their faith. By the way, that 1.8 million figure does not take into account the estimated 600,000 Christians who died in the genocidal conflicts of Rwanda and Burundi, nor does it fully account for the more than 2 million deaths in the 17 years of Sudanese civil war waged by the militant Islamic government against the predominantly Christian population of South Sudan. Again, in spite of circumstantial difficulty, in spite of intense persecution, the Jesus movement grew explosively. We could also tell the story of what happened in Korea in the back half of the 20th century. Amazing! And what happened and is happening in South America during the same time period, simply explosive. But remarkably, all of these growth stories may pale in comparison to what's going on in China right now. Communist China. Communist, anti-religion China, specifically anti-Christian China. So the 2000s is really the first time anything close to accurate statistics on the Jesus movement in China were available. There's an officially sanctioned church in China. It has the approval of the Communist Party. However, it may not evangelize, it may not train its leaders, and it may not train its children, and it usually can't own property. It's called the Three Self Church. However, by 2004, the communist government released statistics estimating that the Three Self Church, by 2004, had grown to an estimated 18 million members. This number came as a shock to much of the rest of the world since hardly anyone outside of China knew anything about what was happening inside of China, especially the Christians. No one could explain how this happened or why. And no one could have known that that number, 18 million, would grow to 36 million by 2016. That's an annual growth rate of 6.5% in a society where Christians are routinely persecuted and where the church essentially isn't allowed to grow. And almost everyone who studies China believes that the underground church is much, much larger than the official three-self church and is experiencing a much faster growth rate. I've read suggestions as four times larger and eight times faster. If you do the math on that, I think you'll find that friends of my great-grandchildren may be arguing against Christianity because it's just a Chinese religion. <laughs> Side note. I read an article recently in Atlantic, which is not a Christian source. And they were suggesting that the growth of the church in China in the last couple of years is slowing down. They listed a variety of reasons they believe this to be the case. Listen to this. First reason among them, consumerism. Explains some things about us, doesn't it? Okay, so here's what we've been contending so far. 
The growth of the Jesus movement is unparalleled when you consider both scope and duration, so much so that it commands our attention based on that fact alone. So what? What does all this mean? I'm going to give you four things that it means. Number one, it means that Jesus came into the world to be the Savior of the world. That's what the prophets predicted. That's what the angels announced. That's exactly what he's doing. He's saving the world, not just Jews, certainly not just Westerners. Jesus is saving the world, including you and me. Secondly, it means if you are standing, please don't go to sleep yet. If you are standing outside of faith this morning, I'm convinced that you need to take another look at it. I believe this history begs you to do so. Look, these kind of numbers are not proof that the story is true. As we said, there have been other kind of movements who have experienced expansive growth, and large numbers of people have been wrong before. But this kind of growth over this period of history, unparalleled. Still, not proof. But I want you to imagine that I am at Freedom High School in the gymnasium watching Susanna Kim play volleyball. And three students run into the gym and they say, I hear them talking to someone down in the stands below me, the sky outside is purple. I think what I'm going to do is continue to enjoy Susanna's volleyball game. But if seven more students come in and all together shout in the gym, you got to come out and see, the sky is purple, and two more kids come in from the other side of the gym, the sky is purple, and a janitor comes in and says, the sky is purple, and a police officer comes in and says, the sky is purple, I'm going to go outside and look. And if you're standing in a place of skepticism today, I want to beg you, look, the sky is purple. And a lot of people have seen it. How did that happen? How did this movement survive, much less thrive? I believe the best explanation for the growth of the Christian church is the active movement of a sovereign God, and I commend him to you. Third, for those of us like me who wring our hands about the condition of the church in America, this history means stop wringing. Look, the church in America isn't doing well. Now, this statistic is four or five or, I don't know, six years old, maybe eight years old, but I think it's still valid. There is no county in America where the Jesus movement is growing relative to population. I'm going to say that again. There is no county in America where the Jesus movement is growing relative to population. That includes the county where your favorite huge megachurch is that's producing YouTube videos. What that suggests is a lot of those churches are gathering people from other churches. Over 85% of churches in America are stagnant or declining today. The church in America is not doing well, but... And I say this with profound love and affection for my country. God is still in charge, and God does not need America. He did it without America for 1,700 years. Besides, we are not, first and foremost, any of us, Americans. Our allegiance is to the Savior of the world, and His church is doing just fine. Thank you very much. 
You know, this was inspired probably 15 years ago. Between 10 and 15 years ago, I went to a, a conference and I heard a missiologist speak. A missiologist, fancy word for somebody who studies what's going on around the world among people who follow Jesus. And he marshaled some of these incredible statistics that blew my mind. He came up with a statistic for the average number of people that are becoming Christians in Africa a day. And what they believed at the time, and it was a low estimate, the average number of people in China who were becoming Christians every day. It was like the service at thousands of churches a week. Anyway, at the end of his talk, he gave this really compelling illustration. Obviously, I still remember it. I'm on the edge of my seat, and he says to all of us, he says, you know, I've, uh, I want you to go with me. We're going to humanize this thing. But I imagine myself uh, getting to heaven, and I get up there and heard this kind of thing before, and I feel it too. And, and I'm, I'm going to run around heaven, and I'm going to find St. Peter. And I want to grab St. Peter and fall down in front of him, and I want to say, St. Peter, tell me what it was like. You were, you were there when Jesus was alive. That stuff he did, tell me. And he says, here's what I imagine. I imagine that I go running and I find St. Peter. And before I can say anything, Peter says to me, you're from the first part of the 21st century. Tell me what it was like when the church was exploding. And I've realized that I'm going to have to say, Peter, I lived in the suburbs. And we were really busy. And we missed it. We missed it. Fourth, for those of us We've given our lives over allegiance to the Savior of the world. I think this history means we need to remember that our lives are part of a much bigger story. And by the way, it's a story that God is winning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Savior of the world, we acknowledge you today. We bend our knees before you today. We thank you for your awesome power and your great victory in our lives, in this room, in our country, in the world. All over the world today, people are bending their knees for the first time to you, the Savior of the world. And we rejoice at that. I pray that you would quicken our hearts and wake us up. You are doing and you want to do mighty things. Do them through us here, not because we deserve it, Lord. We're this obscure little outpost. we 30 miles from some random big city in the world. And yet, Lord, I know, I know, if you find a people who will give their lives to you, you will move. I pray you'll do that here. I thank you so much for your activity around the world. I pray today especially for those Christians who are being persecuted for their faith and they're still standing. Give them strength today. Finally, Lord, I want to pray for anybody here who has not wrapped their whole life and heart around you. I pray that you will speak thunderously, that you will interrupt their lives and call them to you, the Savior of the world and the strong, mighty, explosive name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Would you stand with us? We're going to do one more song before we go.
Sing this at the top. Sing it again with Becca. Angels, we have heard. Yeah.